Well, good morning. I was just talking in the car, and I think it's been five years at least since I've been here at Northwest. Um, I used to go here as a child. My parents and grandparents and some of my siblings still come here. Fifteen years ago this year, I moved to Lima, Peru to help, at the time, do a youth group for a church that my grandparents, who were missionaries in South America, had helped plant. Today, my husband and I pastor, we're lead senior pastors of this church in Lima called Agua Viva, and it's been an amazing adventure. Um, we not only pastor the church, we also do a lot of um, traveling and speaking. What I said in the first service, which I also think, it's been probably five years since I've spoken a service in English. So if I say something a little funny, it, just forgive my grammar because it's been a while. Uh, I speak in Spanish. I've also learned Portuguese and can speak Portuguese. Uh, is there any, tenemos algún brasileiros aquí? Eh? Tenemos algunos latinos en la casa? So we've got a little bit of flavor. I now like spicy food and ceviche. And God's really given me a heart for his church everywhere. Um, big churches, small churches, churches that speak all different kinds of languages and are all different countries. We all make up one body. And we can be so different. But in the end, I walk into a church and I always feel at home. Because, well, of course this one, I know everybody, but um, even others. And I wanted to give you guys a little overview with the message of kind of what we've been doing and what's been going on around the world. I know if you just look on the internet or watch the news, you would think the world is <laughs> coming apart, it's going to hell in a handbag, but that's not true at all. Uh, I travel the world and I have seen churches grow. Serge and I were talking, we're like, we, people always say, you're the biggest church in Peru, but we begin to think, we're not just the biggest church in Peru in present day, we're the biggest church ever. And the biggest churches around the world, right now the biggest churches in Nigeria, it's over one million people strong. The biggest churches are in Africa. What people once said was the dark continent is now the continent of light. And they have a building that seats a million and they have more than one service in it. We don't always hear about those, they're not on TV. And the big bishops are in Africa. Huge churches in South America. A lot of the countries in Latin America are pushing the 50% population of evangelical Christians. Guatemala is at 51. Colombia is getting there. Peru, we're at 30. And you can feel it in the streets. See people in the buses reading their Bible, sharing God's word, holding hands, praying in the restaurants. There is a change in the wind. Ten years ago, my husband and I visited the south of Europe. And as you know, the northern Europe has had its waves of revival in the past, but every 50 to 100 years, they'll have a big revival. But the southern states of Europe, Italy, Greece, Spain, Portugal, have never had a revival. They've never had big evangelical churches, never even gotten close to 1,000 people ever in the history of the church since the, the very beginning primitive churches that used to be in those same areas. In the past five years, the churches in the southern countries of Europe have pushed the 1,000 member barrier, lots of them. In Spain, a country that used to be illegal to be anything but Catholic for centuries, 
now has multiple churches pushing the 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 members. What I see in the Middle East is exciting. I have friends who pastor churches in Cairo, in Lebanon, who are pushing eight and 10,000 members. My pastor friend in Lebanon has a, past, has a church right on the border with Syria, which, which if you know, was just totally destroyed uh, by ISIS. And so there's constant refugees crossing the border. And I don't know if you knew this, but about 20 years ago, there was a war between Lebanon and Syria where Syria invaded Lebanon and just did horrible things to the people there. And this pastor, when he was young, he wasn't a pastor, he was just a regular um, Lebanese, and his father, died in that war at the hands of the Syrians. When he got saved, he forgave them, and his church that's right on the border, when all the refugees started coming into town, everyone from the town was like, oh, let them die, they deserve it, after all they've done to us. And he said, I'll open the doors of my church and you guys can sleep here, you guys can stay here. And he's been such a testimony in the community. He's gotten three imams saved. I don't know if you know what an imam is, like a pastor at a mosque. One of them decided to stay the imam, being a Christian, and went back to his mosque to preach Jesus. <laughs> but things are happening and things are changing. Our pastor's friends in the Middle East, they've told us, they said, we've never been able to get churches to be big or to be protected. But he said, in the last five years, the young population of Muslims have been leaving the is on faith in droves. They said 30%, 30% I've been open to a new faith or, or leaving Islam. And the reason why is ISIS. They said they see ISIS and they were so embarrassed. They said, if that's Islam, that's not what I wanna be. That's not who I am. And they're open to do all kinds of things, including the Christian faith. So I just wanted to build your faith a little bit, let you know what's going on in the world. A lot of exciting things are happening. And I wanted to share with you a little bit this morning on Jesus the friend maker. Your pastors told me the other day, we had breakfast together and they said, shared their heart about what's going on right now at church. And their word for the beginning of this year is to gather and to grow. I'm sure you've seen maybe in the bulletins and maybe you've heard about it in their messages, but to gather and to grow. Maybe you hear those words and you think, well, what does that mean for me? Does that mean I have to like, go evangelize or go preach or does that make you nervous? But I want you to just you know, shake off all the nerves. Don't be nervous. The real way to gather and grow isn't to have to go to preach to somebody or evangelize someone. The real way to do that is to make friends, is to become a person who is open, a person who loves. I want to talk about kind of how Jesus did this. A lot of times... Over the centuries, we tend to paint Jesus in this real religious light, but Jesus was not religious at all. He was always doing things that were controversial and shocking to regular good-standing people. He made friends and would always talk to people from all different kinds of backgrounds. He was never afraid to say, oh, I'm not talking to that woman. She's not wearing enough clothes. He would always reach out. He risked his reputation to save women in adultery. He risked his reputation to walk up to the Samaritan woman at the well. Even she was surprised. She's like, why are you talking to me? During Jesus' time, 
his country was in great political turmoil. And there were two extreme sides. Sounds nothing like today, right? <laughs> there were two extreme political mindsets. One side was because Israel had been taken over by the Roman Empire, one side said, yes, it's better for us to be under Roman rule. And the extreme group and the ones, the pacifists who accepted the Roman rule said, they went as far as to work for the Roman government as tax collectors, and they made money off the fact that the Romans were there. And then there was the people in the middle who kind of weren't sure, and then there was the other extreme that were the zealots. And the zealots said, oh, these Romans, these pagans, God is with us. We should have our own country. And they were constantly planning rebellions. Every 10 or 20 years, there was a rebellion um, by the zealots. And then there's all these people in between. And most of the people between despised both groups. If you read through the Gospels, you'll see people, all oh, tax collectors, all oh, zealots. <laughs> they were the despised people. And if you look, I want us to look at Mark 3. If we look at the list of disciples that Jesus chose to be his top leaders, he shockingly picks people from both extreme sides of the spectrum. In Mark 3, 16 to 19, we see these are the 12 he chose. Simon, who he named Peter. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who he nicknamed the sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew. Matthew, who you know is a tax collector. Thomas, James, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot. Mark makes sure and puts it in there just in case you forgot. And Judas, a scary who later betrayed him. Now, if you know anything about Bible lists, they were always very purposeful in naming the most important people first. If they were siblings, they would always name the firstborn first. If they're, it's a list of people who aren't related, it is the most important leaders first and the least important at the end. So we'll see Peter at the top, and we'll see Judas at the bottom. And if you find this list in different Gospels and also in Acts, you'll see the people in the middle kind of get mixed around and changed up according to the political beliefs of whoever's writing that that book. So this particular book is written by the Gospel of Mark, and you can tell Mark was kind of leading more to the pacifist side because he puts Matthew kind of in the middle. Talks like you're not quite so bad. Simon the Zealot, barely above the betrayer. <laughs> so he's, he has this, this bigotry. He's labeled Simon, and he's already said just because of political belief, he deserves to be at the very bottom. And it's interesting that Mark has this because Jesus doesn't have this. Jesus picked them both. Jesus saw the real value in their soul, not based on how they voted or how they lived. And one of the things that I see in Jesus and everything that he does is that he always loved first. I love the story of the rich young ruler. And if, I don't want to read the whole thing, but just pull out one verse. In Mark 10, 21, Jesus, looking at the man, loved him and said, there is one more thing you need to do. Go and sell everything you have. Give the money to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Jesus loved him first and asked hard questions later. He loved, he touched the leper first and then he healed him. He loved the noisy children. He loved the women with the issue of blood. And he loved the rich young ruler. Sometimes people say, oh, I love poor people, but rich people, mm, they're so snooty, they're so this, they're so that. And sometimes we have this classism or a bigotry against a certain person because they dress a certain way or they're a certain color or they have some background or they have some accent or they're from some city that we don't like. But Jesus didn't have that. He was predisposed 
to love. Racism, bigotry, classism, it's a predisposition to not like you. Before you open your mouth, they've already decided to not like you. But Jesus teaches us the opposite. Before you open your mouth, I have chosen to love you. Before I found out how you vote, I have chosen to love you. Before I know your background, I've chosen to love you. And that's what Jesus calls us to do. He had a preconceived idea to love the person. My great-grandmother, who we're going to visit this week because she's probably going on to see Jesus soon. Though we always say that when we visit her and we always say bye and cry and then she's always still there when we go back. (laughs) She's 103. And she's been a Christian her whole life. And when she reached 100, she's like, I don't know why I've lived this long, but if God's let me live this long, I'm going to keep on uh, I'm going to keep on ordering my tracks, and I'm going to keep on witnessing for him. So every day, she would walk around her neighborhood, and she'd pray for the people. Now, she lives in Detroit, and in Detroit, her neighborhoods, um, a whole lot of Muslims and Arabs have come into her neighborhood. And she'll walk by the houses, and she'll pray for the houses, and she'll pray for her neighbors. And sometimes she'll see, she would see veiled women kind of creak open the drapes to look at her, and she'd wave, and they'd close the drapes again. And she'd pray for them and pray for them and kept walking every day and pray for them. And every day waving and smiling, even if they'd close the drapes, she'd wave and smile. And finally she started feeling led to knock on the door. Say, what am I going to do? What are they going to do? The worst they could do is kill me. I'm already 100. Who cares? <laughs> so she'd walk up on the door, knock, this cute little old lady. Hot. They'd let her in and give her coffee. They chatted. And she made friends with them. Walk up to the house and make friends with them. After a while, share Jesus with them. After a while, do the sinner's prayer with them. Start bringing them little tracks to read the Gospel of John. Read salvation methods. A few more months, bring them Bibles. And she's been able to have this relationship and win them because she was not afraid. She didn't say, oh, well, they're dressed like that. That's just how they're going to be. No. God loves them too. And she went after them and aggressively went to be friends with them. And if we're going to gather, we're going to have to cross some boundaries that maybe we had drawn in our lives of people we thought we weren't going to talk to. Oh, well, they're dressed like that. They have that kind of car. I'm not going to talk to them. They're hurting too. Everybody who doesn't know God is hurting and broken. Sometimes the love first. You don't have to be a great speaker. You don't have to have a message prepared. You don't have to preach your fans. I just smile. Say good morning. Maybe they won't answer. Keep saying good morning. Love first. Secondly, is shine your light. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Being friendly doesn't mean you don't have rock-solid principles or strong viewpoints. It means you wait for an opportune time to talk about them and to talk about them respectfully. You're never going to, I don't live in America anymore, but I'll go online and just look at social media and the comments and people are so disrespectful. I, who raised these people? <laughs> That's not okay to talk like that to someone else just because they don't agree with you on something. But we can have strong viewpoints. Love is not all tolerating. Love is not all enabling. Jesus, when he met the rich young ruler, he didn't say, oh, well, just just come. He says, yes, I love you. But do this. You've got one thing. 
that's not right in your life. You've got one thing that's your idol, it's your stuff. Sell it and come and follow me. He loved first, gave the hard stuff later. And we're going to begin to gather and we're going to begin to grow and we're going to begin to be that light. When we just offer, offer our time. Maybe you have kids at school and you can go up to the other moms and make friends with the moms and say, hey, you can invite your kid over. Or if something happens, hey, I can pick up your kid from school that day if you can't. Or begin to offer. Begin to offer your time. Begin to offer your love. It doesn't have to be something huge. You can start with something small. Maybe you don't have a huge amount of money or a huge amount of time, but what you do have, you can begin to offer it. You can begin to be a light. At the beginning of last year in March, I don't know if you know this, but Lima's on the coast, but it's in a desert area. It never, ever rains. People always say, oh, it must rain a little. It doesn't rain at all. <laughs> I mean, we get this fine mist, but it's not actually even drop. It's just kind of like a dew, a thick dew. But every, every about 100 years, the currents on the Pacific will change, which happened last year, and we'll get this huge superstorm. And so last year in March, we got this huge superstorm, and it rained and it rained and it rained for weeks. The rivers flooded and grew to many times their normal size. And all of the desert sand was turned to mud and was wiping whole first houses and then hotels and then whole towns away. Whole towns got wiped off the map. And we're sitting here in our churches. We have churches in all these towns thinking, God, what can we do? People I know that had money were all trying to leave the country and take their valuables out and get out. But I'm like, God, I know that you've called us here for a purpose. I know amongst all this darkness, you have a plan. And he goes, yes, help. And so we gathered what we could. We gathered what, what supplies we could. And we began to give them out. A lot of the roads had been covered with mud, and we, sometimes we would walk miles to find a town or find maybe survivors of a certain town to give them aid. I don't know if you have any follow me on Instagram, but I have a video of um, a bunch of guys in a huge line throwing bags over this mountain to get aid to certain towns. We were able to be lights in neighborhoods and in areas that had never heard the gospel and that we'd never had gone to before, and we had that chance because the darkness and bad things had settled in. And I know here... In Orlando, you get hurricanes. And you may think, oh, I may get scared. Oh, hurricane season's coming. I should buy plywood. I should get ready. But I want to challenge you to also get ready to be a light in the dark times. Also get ready. Buy extra to maybe help a neighbor who didn't buy enough. Get extra gas, maybe. Get extra uh, space in your generator. Get something extra, extra food so that you can offer help to your neighbor. And say, hey, if you're not having enough, it's okay. You guys can come over and eat. Or you guys can come over to our house to, to shower. I brought extra water. But to be that light and have that door open to shine. Sometimes people are like, I don't even know how to start a conversation. Some of the easiest conversation starters are dogs and babies. <laughs> if you have a dog or a baby and you go to a park, someone will come up and say something to you. If you don't have one, borrow one. <laughs> borrow someone's baby or someone's dog and go to the park and someone will come up and talk to you. Or you can walk up someone easy to some other dog and say, oh, what kind of dog is that? Oh, da, da, da. And you can get talking. Because God's called us to be a light. And it's not just for a few special people. That calling is for all of us in the body to be that light. So strategically think how you can be that light in your community, in your neighborhood, in your school, in your job. 
wherever you're at, that people know when they hit hard times, they know they can count on you. They know they can call you because you've let yourself be available to them. And lastly is sympathy. Romans 12.15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. The Bible doesn't say judge those who mourn. And it's easy to judge people. If we're honest, it feels good to judge people, doesn't it? It makes you feel somehow better. Oh, they're going through that, and they must deserve that. (laughs) The truth is we all hit hard times. And if we can see past maybe what they did, even if it's the consequence, they're living consequences of their own actions or decisions, we can still be sympathetic for them. We can still lend that helping hand to them. Carl Lentz says, if your opinion of others is louder than your love for others, then do not be surprised if your voice carries no weight. We can judge the people who are hurting and are living out consequences, or we can sympathize sympathize with them. Most people find God when they hit rock bottom. Let's sympathize sympathize with them. Let them know that our doors are open. I recently read that 50 million Americans are on Xanax. Xanax, if you don't know, is a medicine for panic attacks and for depression. But one of the side effects is suicide. I think you have to be pretty desperate to take a medicine whose side effects is possible death. But 50 million Americans are on it. I remember when I was a teenager and I first heard panic attacks, I'm like, what? That can't be true. Grown-ups afraid of nothing? That doesn't make any sense. But it's true. People are terrified of the future. People can be terrified of being alone. People can stay in abusive relationships because they're terrified of being independent. We have the answer. We have to get it out there. We have to be the kind of friend and neighbor and coworker who when people are going through something, they know that they can call us and we won't be judging them. We'll say, I may not understand what you're going through, but I'm here for you. I may not understand what it's like to lose a child, but I'm here for you. Be sympathetic. I have pastor friends in Germany and Sweden, and two years ago, when Chancellor Angela Merkel said she was going to allow millions of refugees to come in to Europe, and that Germany was going to take one million of them, lots of people entered in panic, chaos in the streets. And that Sunday, his pastor in Germany got up, and he goes, people, we may or may not agree with what she has said and what she did, but it's already happened, and it is happening. These people are coming. And we can may think, oh, let's send them back. Let's make them know they're not welcome. Let's, he's like, or we can see it as an opportunity. Yes, it may be true that this is wrong, but it's also true that this is the biggest Opportunity that we've had in centuries to get inside and win people in the Muslim community because they used to always be so tight and close to the gospel. They have come to our doorstep. Let's go out and love them. He said, right now, the extremist cell groups are going to be preying on those people to come in and become terrorists. Let us be even more aggressive to get them to come to our churches and to know God. So they went after those people. And their church in two years has doubled. They've won 1,700 of the refugees. My pastor friend in Sweden, 
he didn't find out about it until the people had arrived in his town. The news was on, and the refugees were already there. He's like, I haven't prepared any kind of budget to help these people. But on Sunday, he goes, I know the money was tight, the economy is not good, but if you can just bring old coats, sweaters, scarves, mittens, gloves, these people have come in rags, and it was the beginning of the winter in Sweden. Or if you don't even have that, if you can make coffee, bring coffee. If you can make cakes, bring cakes. We're going to walk down to that refugee camp that was just a couple of miles down from their church, and we're going to invite them in. And we're going to love on them. They walk down to the refugee camp and say, hey, anybody that wants free coffee, free coat, you can come. We're just a couple of miles away. We'll all walk together. And while you drink your coffee, while you pick out your new coat, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story about my best friend and why I do this. That church has seen more than double growth as well. They've also gone after the children. That, that, that church has a school. They have six schools, six Christian schools. And they said, anyone in church who has a spirit room, I want to challenge you to foster one of these orphan refugee kids. And they've taken hundreds of them off the streets. They come to church every Sunday. They pray over their meals every meal. And then are going to Christian school. They've loved aggressively to the point where it hurts. And they're making a difference. They're gathering and growing in areas in Europe where no one else is growing. And we will begin to grow and gather when we begin to love like no one else is loving. When we love the people that no one else wants, God's going to start to give us the people that everybody wants. People can tell if you're loving. People can tell. Just a high and a smile, people can tell if you really love them. I want to challenge you to start doing that. Maybe you don't have any, like, any extra budget, any extra time. Just smile. Give a real handshake. Give a real hug. And just say, how are you doing? And stick around for a real answer. Just say, I want you to know anytime something's going on, I want you to know you can count on me. I want you to know I can take your kids if you need it, if you need a night off. I can be there for you. Be sympathetic. God loved us recklessly. I love that, that verse in Romans. It said, he died for us first. While we were still sinners, he came and died for us. While we were still sinners, God gave us Jesus. Not knowing how we would respond, he gave us Jesus. And when we saw that, when we experienced that love, is when we started to change. Sometimes you want to see people change first and then experience God's love, and it's the other way around. People have to experience God's love first. And when they know that someone has invested so much love in them, they'll see the reason to change. When someone knows you love them, that gives you the reason and the authority to be able to speak into their lives. When they know that you love them, they will listen to you. When they know that you care for them, that you've been looking out for them, they'll listen to you when you say something in love. Right now, I'm reading a book by Eric McTexas called Martin Luther. Don't know if anyone else is reading it. I recommend it. It's an amazing book. And one of the things during the Reformation, there was a lot of pastors and preachers, not just Luther, that was starting this Reformation. It was a feeling. It was a movement that was happening. But many of the other preachers who were saying, leave the Catholic Church. Do everything the opposite. If you used to have to have the priest give you the bread and the wine, now you have to take the cup and you have to do this. And if you used to be a monk, now you have to get married. And it was all of a sudden you went from one law to another law. 
And Luther goes, no, 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 that's not how it's supposed to be. And he goes, you have to be sympathetic to the weaker brethren, says the word. And he goes, if you used to be Catholic and now you, you've changed, you don't have to all of a sudden do everything. You are now free. If you wish, I can give you the bread and the wine. And if you wish, you can take it yourself. You're free to do either one. And I'll be sympathetic with you. And I will never cross that line of, to hurt a weaker brother's conscience. And a lot of the other pastors were, got angry at this. And they would rage against Luther. But years later, as Luther's movement began to move all around the world, one of his greatest detractors said this. And he goes, the honey-lined net was more effective than the unyielding fetter. And that's what me and you, that's what we have, that's what God's called us to be. Not to be the unyielding fetter, but be the honey-lined net. People will gather if you're the honey-lined net. If you're the person that says, you can come over anytime. You can, we, there's always food at my house. The kids can always be here. Everything's, you can, you can count on me. People will come. I know lots of people are starting gather groups. And it can be scary to open your home sometimes to strangers. But get your home ready. My home is bomb-proof, I would say. I bought this flooring that uh, when I went to the store, they walk in, they give you a hammer and a nail, and they say, see if they can make a scratch on this floor. <laughs> and I'm trying to. And they say, it's flood-proof. It's everything-proof. 25 years. I'm like, yeah, 25 years, my kids will be grown. Sold. I have this wall that's washable. The kids can do anything to it. Is wipe it down. Because I want that, I want the home to be welcoming. I want you to feel at home here. You can kick your shoes off. Everything here is bomb proof or washable. I want you to know that you can you can feel at home here. You can rest here. Maybe you're going to terminal at home. You can be at home here in my home. Most people are going through, a lot of people go through hell at home. And they leave the house to find solace. But let your home and let your heart and let you be open so people can feel <sighs> at home with you. And you'll begin to gather. You'll begin to gather so many people. Your house can't hold them. Our church started at a home. Started at my, my father-in-law's aunt's home. It started in the living room with just eight couples. They grew to, they filled the living room, up the stairs, into the kitchen, overflowed every single room. And then they had to start buying buildings. They bought building after building until we got to where we are today. We are in the largest roofed arena in the country. It seats 17,500 people. Start your gather group. God wants for his body to grow. He wants his church to grow. He wants all of his hurting children to have a chance to know him, to know his love, to know that life doesn't have to be scary and panic-filled, but it can be loving. We can connect. It can be real. I'd like to ask you to stand. And I hope I've introduced a Jesus. It doesn't sound like some of the fancy religious Jesus in the stories, but if you really look at the Gospels, Jesus is something pretty different than some of the ways he's painted. He went after everyone. He loved everyone first. And if you're here maybe for the first time and thinking, I don't know if, if God could, could love me how I am, or I don't know if people could love me if they knew me, I want you to know that here, and I wish, I hope in every, 
of one of God's houses, you'll find people that will love you first. We're not here to judge you. We've all come from something. None of us are angels. We've all come from something. Oh, we all want to love you first. To love you through whatever it is you're going through and help you fulfill the destiny that God has on your life because he made you for a purpose. He made you for greatness.